Welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. Got a fun episode for you guys today. We have Felix Holst coming on the podcast. Amazing, amazing. artist, amazing guy with awesome, awesome, awesome stories. Awesome. What What do you call them? Credentials or or what's the, what's the proper yeah, word for it? Just uh, credentials, history. Yeah, just, just awesome, awesome dude. Uh, came over from uh, Newcastle in England to come over here and work for Hot Wheels and do all kinds of crazy, awesome shit. He's the co-founder and chief product officer for Hackrod. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. He was also previously vice president of Creative at Mattel, uh, moving all the way up from project designer uh, of Hot Wheels UK. So a huge journey there with Hot Wheels. Um, he's an incredible artist selling art on Bring a Trailer among, amongst uh, getting commissions done. If you want to have a commission, he will do that for you. Uh, some have sold for $13,000. It is awesome. Uh, many of them are into the five digits. They're they're incredible. They're really, really unique. They're, they're, I like uh, how he described it as like art pop, like Andy Warhol style they're, automotive pieces. They're super great. I really, really enjoy them. And it's kind of a long episode, so we're going to get right into it. But before we do that, what have you got for us? Let's take a moment to hear from our sponsor, Petrolbox. Petrolbox is a monthly service made specifically for the automotive enthusiast. Each month, they carefully select items including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, and publications to be sent right to your doorstep. It's a curated selection of the latest and greatest gear in the industry. And there's actually two different levels of subscription to choose from. You have the Petrobox Basic, which costs less than 20 bucks a month, and the Petrobox Premium, which gets you even more gear for $39.95 a month. Be sure to check them out at mypetrolbox.com and use the code OVERCREST at checkout to get $6 off your first month. Hello. Mr. Felix Holst, how's it going, man? Hey, Chris, how are you doing? Good, I'm here with my co-host, Jake. Hi, Felix. Hey, Jake, how are you? I'm good. What do you got What do you got going on over there in the California? Oh, hey, I'm sitting. I uh, This is the first garage. I've just, I moved into a new place a couple of months ago, and this is the first garage I've ever had that doesn't have tools and a car in it. It's a, it's, it's my, it's my studio. Ah. And so I spend, I, I spend every day covered in paint, staring out at the palm trees and the blue sky outside and, uh, you know, patting myself on the back. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, but I haven't it, heard anything negative yet. This, is, this all sounds pretty good to no, me. No, I mean, look, there's not much negative really. It's the, it's the West side of Los Angeles. I live, I live, I live on the edge of Venice beach. Um, and uh, there's not much negative to say. I was just patting myself on the back this morning for being able to keep a family a family home paid for whilst slinging paint. Yeah, and I was like, you know, you know, you might not be you might not be as famous as, as some artists at the moment, but um, if you can if you can if you can make a living, never mind make a living on the west side of Los Angeles slinging paint. You're not doing too bad, are you? Really? <laughs> yeah, pretty much any time you're if you're in a creative industry and you're able to survive and buy buy food and bread and pay your rent you're doing pretty well if you're a creative that can make it yeah there's been there's been many times in my life when i've had to remind myself that you know like at the end of the day i i I don't think i've ever really done anything that i didn't just love and um at one point i realized that you know i haven't really progressed far from lying on my belly playing with toy cars on the carpet in my bedroom when i was a kid (laughs) I, i i really generally just do that for a living and always have and so while there's a lot of there's a lot of subtleties in there and there's a lot of executive kind of presence, generally all I, all I've ever done is lie on my belly and play with toy cars on the carpet. Yeah, that's I mean that's true uh, true wealth right there. Is if you can do what you love, no matter how much money you're making, if if you're doing it, you're wealth you're a wealthy man. Hundred percent. 
So 100%. you grew up in, I want to just talk a little bit about your history and then we'll talk about, you know, art and, you know, design and all these generative design and all these different things. But I want to get a little bit of a foundation. You grew up in Newcastle and I saw, I was looking at Wikipedia. It said like Newcastle on the Tyne and I've never heard of it uh, referred to that way. What does that, what does that mean? Well, there's, so there's, there's actually two Newcastles in, in, in England. Um, Which one has the beer? Is that yours? <laughs> that's, yeah, that's Newcastle. Okay. Um, and we like if you're from if you're from Newcastle upon Tyne, you generally just say I'm from Newcastle, right? But there is also Newcastle under Lyme, and the Tyne and the Lyme are both rivers. And okay. so you know it goes back to it goes back to the days before this great nation was even considered. <laughs> and uh, you know it, it's it's old English. It's Newcastle on the River Tyne, basically Newcastle upon Tyne. So you guys have um, like a rivalry with the other one? Do they have like a shittier beer or anything like that? <laughs> Not really. No, I'm gonna. I, 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 you know, it was. We, we all, we always considered it just as the kind of second place Newcastle, right? But I'm sure that if you're from Newcastle, Newcastle under Lyme, I'm sure that you consider yourselves the original. Um, and I've got no idea which one is the original. And um, at the end of the day, they both probably had a Newcastle built at some point. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know. Hey, this one's brand new. Well, ours is brand newer. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I always, I always joke. It's the one side of living in Los Angeles. I really miss it. Like I, I, I learned to drive. I learned to drive on 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 this on the, the. There's a road called the Military Road where I'm where I'm from, and it it it's basically runs along Hadrian's Wall, which was the Roman Wall, right? That's that's the wall where the Romans ran out of empire, ran out of steam. Um, and so I, I kind of literally learned to drive on on the Roman Wall. Uh, and there's a suburb of Newcastle called Wall's End because that's where the Roman Wall ends. And so the Roman Wall predates Christ. And so, like, you know, I learned to drive on a road that predates Christ. Yeah, so, there's there's you know, a character when, there for sure. When when you start when you start getting into like new castles, it's it's really an old castle. They should probably just change the name. Call it old castle. Yeah, it's, well, they never rename the town. It's just Newcastle forever. I, I suppose it always. Then, if you ever visit, you're like, wow, I bet there's a brand new castle around here somewhere. Let's let's go find the thing. <laughs> So yeah, you yeah, said you kind of grew up like rolling around on your belly, playing with cars and stuff. And I was kind of wondering, you know, I look at when I look at artists and creatives that always with cars, I'm wondering what kind of came first. Was it the cars or was uh, were you drawing and doing art and design? Which came first for you? No, it was definitely cars. You know, um, I, you know, my first word was tractor and my second word was car. Um, and my dad, my dad was into cars, right? My, my parents are quite young. Uh, my mom was going to be a fashion designer. She she graduated um, from a, a degree in fashion in 1972 with me in her belly. Like she was eight months pregnant with me, um, and so I have this background of relatively young parents. My dad loved cars. Um, the first the first car I can remember was a Ford Anglia that he had. That it was kind of I think he used to rally it. Um, and I've, there's all the stories of my dad just before I was born. You know crashing various Mini Cooper S's and Ford Anglias and Fiat 500s. So the Anglia, that's um, not a model we got over here in the States. Is that uh, a little 2 plus 2 or is it a sedan or what is that? No, it's 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 actually, you did get it. It's quite rare. It's the Harry Potter car. The if Harry you've seen Potter any of the Harry Potter car. movies. All right. Now I'm going to have the, to look this up. Yeah, that's that's how anybody, that's that's the, the like, it's it's an obscure car. It's It's got like, it's it's not even it's not even kind of transatlantic styling. It's very it looks American. Looks like a Trabant or something. <laughs> it's, it, yeah, it's got like weird. It's like it's it's a Ford product of the early '60s, and it, it's got this kind of weird, like angry old man chrome grill that looks. <laughs> it's got a little bit. It's got a little bit of Studebaker in it, really. But it's yeah, got sure. these tiny. It's a little car that used to be in direct competition with the Mini. 
Sure. Um, huh. But it's it's actually it actually had a lot of success in racing, um, and it was an easy one to upgrade with parts from Cortinas and Escorts. Um, so kind of classic Ford hot rod, really. It's a very small car. I, I love them partly because my dad had them when I was a child, but they've got this very, very quirky transatlantic styling that certainly, you know, back in the day when Britain was still being, uh, you know, recovering from the second world war and being bombed all to hell. And so all British cars were very, very austere while, while your average teenager in the U S was cruising around in a, you know, a hot rod 57 Chevy England had like, you know, Morris eights and, and Austin sevens. And, um, the Anglia really was one of the very first kind of glamorous mass-produced cars that came around in the early sixties. How, do, um, how pretty, do you think? I just how do you think that coming out of the war and just getting they it was it was really tough for England. Tough for I mean we we all had losses right, but I mean it was home. It hit home there. What was how did that affect the the psychology of 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 everything when after the war and coming out of that and industry and everything else and design I mean, and, think- and the social construct and everything. It's so funny. Right? I've been watching all these weird like YouTube channels lately about like, you know, there's all these, there's all these kind of really like niche channels about the history of British classic cars and things. And, and it's funny that the, the, there's two sides of it. One side of it, you can look at, at, at the British motor industry, including the, including the motorsports industry and look at the level of innovation that was driven by austerity. Right. So you can look at is a designing the mini and sticking the gearbox in the, in the sump. And, and, and sticking it, like, uh, putting it in a transverse configuration and developing probably one of the most groundbreaking influential cars of all time, based out of the, the kind of Suez oil crisis and, and the need for low-cost steer transport for a nation that had just been, like, uh, you know, largely obliterated. Um, and you, and the same thing for, 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 for Europe, right? Um, some of the greatest cars ever, ever, ever created were born out of that austerity and that efficiency and the need for innovation. Um, and I think that motorsports as well, when you look at that, that mentality, right? That if all you've got is small cars like Austin sevens and Austin minis, then that gives birth to companies like Lotus who do a lot with very little. Right. Um, and, and I think the big difference as well, I mean, obviously like part of my journey has been a, a, a fascination with cars and how they roll into youth culture and fashion and all the rest of it. But that was the big difference in the U S while, you know, the, the the Second World War give give birth to U.S. industry, basically. It kick-started U.S. industry. And so by the time the U.S. rolled into the 50s, it was boom time. Um, and so, you know, it was the land of plenty. Whereas in England, we I think that I think we were still running on ration books for food into the 50s. Wow. Um, and even as a kid, I mean, I was born in 72. Um, and even even as a kid growing up in the 70s, you still felt that shadow of austerity. Um, certainly for, for, for your parents' generation and your grandparents' generation, like the generation above you, the shadow of World War II was very large um, because it was a very physical thing. It wasn't just about, you know, people didn't go overseas to fight that war. The war came to them. Um, right. And so every town in England had the remnants and, 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 the, and, the, and the, the fallout um, from, from those days. Um, and the car industry... It was so. It's so funny, man. I've been looking at British cars, British cars, and I've watched a few things about the kind of history of 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 what Austin and Morris and Triumph became when they became British Leyland. And most of those cars start off looking great on paper, but then someone seems to stick like an old man's mustache on the front of all of them. <laughs> like they've all got like they all look like an old man. 
and that was just where, and so you just know what the guys looked like designing those cars. It's like, <laughs> like it's like an owner's dog, right? Yeah, totally. I'm like, I'm like, really? At least the Europeans, it kind of reminds you of like some re- like cool '60s Italian movie or like a little bit of Bauhaus. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but British British cars generally look like a stuffy old man with a big fluffy mustache. So how did it kind of <laughs> how did it integrate with if you think about like the the seventies and eighties when you started having uh, you know, like GTIs and stuff like that. How did all the cars of the, you know, from when you grew up, 70s or late 70s and into the 80s, how do they influence you and how do they influence pop culture and industrial design and uh, and all of the stuff that kind of evolved in culture at that time? Well, it's kind of, I mean, it's funny. There's my story and then there's most other people's story in England. Like my story, my dad used to work on the oil rigs. He was one of the first guys to go out onto the North, into the North Sea on an oil rig. That is and a so hard very- man right there. Well, I mean, you know, or a lunatic, one of the two. I'm yeah, not sure. Yeah. Um, but he used to bring me all sorts of magazines home. Um, and so from a very early age, every two weeks, he would come back off the rigs and he would drop a, a copy of like the, the two custom car magazines we had in the UK in the 70s and the 80s were called Custom Car and Street Machine. And so I would, he would, he would drop those in my lap every time he came home because he knew I just, I loved it. And so I was absorbing whatever I could get from kind of hot rod and custom car culture from like really from, you know, the age of three or four. Um, and so I, I was, the, I mean, like so many people listening to this, 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 this podcast will probably have the same thing, but I was the kid when my mates were out there playing soccer, I was building model kits and, and drawing cars and reading magazines and, um, and watching and watching anything again on the TV that had cars in it, including most of the great, um, American road movies. And so my trajectory was always tempered with the, 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 the desire for like, muscle cars and hot rods um but it's but simultaneously the, the 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 world i grew up in was one of like all of the all of the older kids the first kids i ever knew got cars everybody went out and bought minis and escorts right because we were a very very rally nation like rally was really the kind of the most accessible motorsports in those days and so it all started with hot escorts and hot minis which of course in classic hot rod chassis fashion, all those cars were easy and cheap to upgrade um, by sticking motors in them from a bigger model because it was all a shared platform. Um, and, and in the same way that 31 Fords and Model Ts were easy to hot rod and Beetles are easy to hot rod. And in fact, Porsche 911s are easy to hot rod. Those chassis were what all the kids went to. And, and it was back in the days of unregulated junkyards, right? So it was easy to go and buy. You know, for like 50 quid, you'd go and buy an engine out of a 1300 GT Austin, Austin 1300 and stick it in your mini and go fast, like in a weekend. Right. Um, and that was really what, that was what was still really going on. Even when I, even when I was old enough to drive, that was the model because you had to leave school to get enough money together to buy a Golf GDI or an XR3, which was the, the hot escort. Um, but those cars coincided with this new, the, the, for the first time, what had happened in what had happened in America in the fifties happened in the UK in the eighties, right? Where suddenly um, young people had money to spend. Um, the kids who left school at sixteen and got jobs as like you know builders, contractors, plumbers suddenly had money to spend, and so the cars to have were you know the Mark One Golf GTI, the Ford Escort XR three, and then later on things like the the, the Sierra Cosworth. Um, and it all, that all happened in a, it was this melting pot of kind of fashion designer labels, fast cars with high design intent and crime. And that <laughs> crime was either 
soccer hooligans or car theft. And so there was this like melting pot of like all happening at the end of the eighties when also acid house music and, and, and a whole new, a whole new genre of kind of music and, and, and culture came together. And so there was this intoxicating mix of, of, of like designer fashion labels with designer cars. Um, and these were also the cars that everybody from like, you know, the, the, the stockbrokers to princess die drove. And so, so it was a really fascinating time, certainly in the UK for, you know, kind of designer labels on cars, which started with the Golf GDI and then very quickly, you know, the, 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 the Peugeot 205 GTI came along and it was that, you know, pinstriped um, cloth fabric on the interior with a hint of red on the bumpers. Very, very 80s, but also for the first time, very, very affordable, super high performance cars. Um, and now you're seeing that, you know, you're seeing that in the UK. Now all of those cars are untouchable. The, 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 the the values of those cars are going through the roof. I know. I thought, um, you know, I, I bought my 911 probably eight or nine years ago, and I go, okay, got the 911, I'm going to get that figured out, and then I'm going to get a Mark One GTI again because I've owned like 20 of those things. Yeah. I, there's just no way. There's, there's <laughs> no. In my head, there's like a mental block that I'm not going to spend $20,000 on a car that I bought and sold for five or 600 bucks repeatedly. Oh, 100%. You know, I mean, it's insane. I, I my, pl- my plan, because I... I still say one of the greatest cars I ever owned, and it was really the first nearly new car I bought when I started work, was a 91 16-valve Golf, like a big bumper, facelifted Mark II. And it was just it was just epic because it was everything. It was just at that point, those cars, I, I, I think that in the early 90s, like 90 to 92 was, was almost peak car because cars were modern enough to be robust and solid and last but they were still light enough and flimsy enough to be incredibly high performance. Right. So, and for me that like that, that as soon as I can afford a really good one, um, then, then, then an early nineties, probably a G60 because the G60 was what I always wanted. They were super rare. Um, but it'll be an import. It'll be on Montana plates. And, um, because there's no way that I'm going to spend the kind of money that if you can find a good one in the U S because that's the other side of it, right? You can't Everything even find just, a Corrado to part out anymore. Even Corrado's <laughs> are expensive. <laughs> No, I mean, like everything I just described is why they're now in the UK super desirable, but none of that happened in the US. And so in the US, they were always roached out every single, right. certainly on the, yeah, every, like every Volkswagen, you well, not every Volkswagen, but for every 10 you find, nine of them are just roached out on a level that I can't even believe. Right. Like nobody loved those cars, they're disposable cars. Um, yet in the UK, they're seen as, they're seen as, you know, they are, they are literally my generation's, um, you know, muscle car ultra desirable um and and it's getting hard to find them cheap but even the bad ones are five times better than a u.s one that's, so that's probably you know, true <laughs> i think i'll be i think i'll be importing from the uk rather than paying i think i saw one recently like a, and it was I, it was the color that i really don't like on a mark ii golf and it was that kind of teal green metallic oh the montana green you don't like montana green <laughs> just I just that was the that was the color that you anybody who wasn't cool in the UK had that color. Oh, those things are all over the place here. Yeah, <laughs> but there were, but I th- but but I think there was only three colors offered here. You could only get like black, maybe four. Could you get red? I don't know. Yeah, black, red, white, white, black, and then uh, and Montana then that, green. And then that green. Yeah. Yeah, 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 that was it. Huh? Yeah. I don't know if that's it, but yeah. I, it sounds like that that could be it. Yeah, but I'm not paying fifteen thousand dollars for a car in that color. You know, so <laughs> I'll, 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 
I'll ship one in. Yeah, I, I mean, I, saw, I showed you a, a little video. I saw a uh, Mark II GTI big bumper car in a junkyard in the middle of nowhere, West Virginia at 530 in the morning when I was leaving on my road trip home. And I slammed on the brakes, turned around and went to look at it. And if that thing would have been a 16 valve, almost in any condition, yeah, I probably would have yeah. been, tried to figure out a way to buy it. You know, yeah. just because at this point, it, you just take what you can get. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like you go into the bar and there's one girl. Everybody else is talking to somebody. There's one girl not talking to anybody. Well, I guess I'll just talk to that chick then. <laughs> she's yeah. I mean, on that on that note, I would have gone for it if it was an eight valve as well. If it, if the body was good, but if it was roached out, I would have walked away from it. Yeah, it had some dings and dents, and the seats were kind of no good. And I opened the hood, and it was covered in oil. And I'm like, well, no, I yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah no, it's yeah. not it's not for me. So you know. Talk about the cars a little bit. Now, design. When did design start to become something that you realized was important? Um, well, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate, right, that, that my, my dad was an engineer. My mom was a, a fashion designer. She later became an incredibly talented interior designer once she'd got rid of me and my brother. Um, but I, so design was always something that was I was I was aware of design just as a word, like very early on. Um, and then, like, at some point in, I guess it would have been middle school, secondary school um i entered there was a comp it was a school competition that was thrown over to everybody everybody in my class had to do it but it was run by general motors um it was a car design competition school school kid car design competition and this was like you know mid 80s um when when certainly in the uk everything was suddenly designer anyway like everything was marketed as designer in the 80s mm -hmm. um and so suddenly i'm engaged in this project that was exciting to me because it was cars and I had to learn a little bit about how to lay out a, you know, a kind of a, 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 an elevator, a side view, plan view, blah, blah, blah. My dad pulled me through that. And sure enough, I was selected by the school at the end of the competition. And then I went on and won the competition for my age group. And that, I think, was really when I suddenly became aware that there was such a thing as, as car design, right? I think that it was, I had an inkling that it was a thing. How old were um, you? Oh, I was, I don't know, I'm on 10, okay. 9. Sure, pretty formative um, then. Yeah, you know, and and, and it, because of that, because I took it seriously, and, and like my dad saw me taking it seriously, then we obviously like got some books out of the out of the library. I remember maybe a little bit before that there was a book that was called Prototype Cars, and I remember I remember that word prototype being like some, something that had come from outer space, mm -hmm. uh, and and it was like a, it was a it was a library book that had all of the kind of seventies famous concept cars, um, and so that was a couple of years earlier. So I've become aware of that. And so from that moment on, my mission was to become a car designer. And um, there's a lot of there was a lot of um, you know ebb and flow in trying to trying to achieve that. But I eventually ended up um, rock and roll plays a big part of my story as well. I was always in bands from about the age of fourteen, and th those bands always ended up like failing, but directing where I went to study and things. Um, and so I ended up in Newcastle. On just based on just based on geography, or where the bands going to be touring, or where the guys are from, or what? basically yeah i mean it was like we were in newcastle right and so i didn't want to leave the band we'd, we'd suddenly found ourselves at the age of 17 in um like in nme like we'd released a single and we were in nme and it was like suddenly it was a real band and we were going down to london every few weeks to play showcases just at the same time as i was supposed to be doing my a levels which are kind of your higher level you know your sats and that dictates where you're going to go to study and of course because i'd suddenly learned to drive was in a rock and roll band <laughs> and was enjoying everything else that goes with those two experiences um, I failed my A-levels completely. Um, I mean, I got a D for art, which says something about how, <laughs> how, how distracted I was. Um, and so 
I, I, when it came to time to kind of go to college, um, I, I, I got onto a, a course, a, a college course, while the band got progressively bigger. Um, and so by the time I had to choose a university, I wasn't going to go anywhere. I wanted to stay in Newcastle because I didn't want to give up on this like chance to be a rock star. And um, and of course, you know, I so I ended up at Newcastle studying industrial design, which turned out to be like the best industrial design course in the country at the time. And of course, six months after that, the band fell apart. So I found myself studying design for industry on a very, very good course. What's, what is design um, for industry? What does that mean? Well, it's, it's it's like product design, but it's really it's it's with a with a with a with a focus on making sure that you can actually like understanding the manufacturing processes, right? So there's a big chunk of it is the creative side of designing things, um, you know, toasters, machine guns, scooters. Um, but I then like also that selection a, right there. That's good. <laughs> I mean, what else do you need in your life besides a toaster, a scooter, and a machine gun? I mean, those are. <laughs> Well, that's basically, and most and most seventeen-year-old kids who go to an industrial design course are made to design toasters, but what they really want to design is machine guns and scooters. Right. Um, yeah. And so, you know, so so I did that course, and it, it gave me it gave me a real grounding in in manufacturing. Um, and then I was going to go and do a master's in car design at the RCA. That was my plan, and I I ended up like looking for a an interim job to get me through a year off and landed a temp position with um hot wheels uk and hot wheels had been um hot wheels had been corgi mattel the american company had just bought corgi the british toy car company and matchbox within the same year and then sold them back sold corgi back to management but had kept the office and had called it hot wheels uk and so i rolled into leicester as a as a graduate to start a six-month temp job for them um, what were your plans within, at the time when you were, you're like, okay, this is going to be a step up. I'm going to work on really small cars and then I'll work on big cars later. What was, well, it was, yeah, I mean, it was, it was literally, it was, it was, it would have been a perfect six month step gap for my year off between doing a degree and doing a master's, right? If I was going to go and be a car designer, then having done six months working for Hot Wheels would just be a great addition to my resume as I got my, as I got my shit together, um, to go and do my master's. But within, within four weeks, I'd, I'd spent a week in Milan. Um, and I'd visited head headquarters in Los Angeles and I was working my ass off. And I also realized that not only was I very good at this, I'd never thought about toy design as a career, but I was just naturally good at it because I was still that kid who played on his, you know, in, in my head, I was still that kid who played on his belly in the carpet. Right. Um, you're like Tom and, Hanks and, and, and big. You ever see that? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's surprising how close <laughs> to, uh, you know, how close to my life that movie actually is. Yeah. It's a great um, movie. Yeah, I, it's funny. I showed my seven-year-old it the other night, thinking it would be good fun, and then you know, it's not. It's not. It's not a kid. It's not a kid movie. No, um, no, no, no. It's not. <laughs> no, no. Um, why is Why has he got his hand on her boob, Dad? <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Dad's sitting there going, "Shit, I can't remember this part from my last watch." Anyway, <laughs> um, so so yeah. Now I, I, you know, it was one of those things that that that, that I, I had, I'd never intended that that take that path um and within a few weeks they had basically said you know you, you you're really good at this and we really value you do you want to stay on full time um and I, I didn't think twice about it right because it was also the first time i'd ever really put any real money in my pocket and it was just it was just great man i was traveling the world for three years like literally as a very young guy jumping on and off there specifically um i was doing it started off doing a lot of the toy toy stuff, right? Like like designing um, play sets, like garages and fire stations and things. Um, but I was like, I was starting the project, doing the concept, flying to the states to get it bought off by management, and then flying on to Hong Kong to turn it over to the engineers. And it was just it was just pure luck that my bosses were in their 
mid-30s at the time, and they'd all had kids, and they didn't want to do any of the traveling anymore. And so it all just got handed to me. And, of course, I was like, you know, 20, I don't know how old I was, 26, 25, 26. And, um, and, and at that point, you know, absolutely no strings at all. I was like, yeah, I'll get on the plane. And so I just did like three years of, of, of building a career of being the full 360 guy, not just sitting and drawing pictures, but managing vendors and, 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 and dealing with the factories in China and going and putting a suit on and standing in front of the executives in California to, to sell projects in. And so it was this baptism of, 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 of management fire, basically, project management at first. And then we gradually employed more people and I learned to manage people. Um, Did you ever feel sad we, that you, you know, you ended up being with uh, Mattel till 2015? Did you ever feel sad that it didn't parlay into working for like Ford or Lotus or, you know, any of these companies that you idolized when you were a kid? No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, I think that I think my legacy, um, if, if there are some legacies that I would like to say that I left um, with with the with the brand. Um, and one of them was that when I started, when I moved out to California in 2004, um, like Hot Wheels was seen as the job that the graduates took if they couldn't get a job um, working for the working for the OEMs. Um, and by the time I left, we had OEM designers ringing up and saying, "Can I come and work for you?" And we had some. Mm. I had some. I had some big names, like big name designers, ringing me up and trying to sell themselves to me as Hot Wheels designers. Why, um, Why did they want to do that? Because they because they, they they you know the brand became synonymous with kind of you know really quite radical style um and imagination and and as the car industry became less and less diverse in terms of the types of projects or the amount of platforms people were working on i think that hot wheels we certainly upped the glamour um we we took it from being a fairly stuffy old brand which was just muscle cars and hot rods to being a very very like brand focused on the coolest aspects of car culture around the world um and I think that, you know, gradually we upped the level of designer coming to us. A lot of the guys, a lot of the next generation, well, a lot of the guys had always come from OEMs anyway. Um, but a lot of the guys, the, the, you know, certain names like Juno Mai, and those guys were starting to be seen not only as leaders in design, but in the cars they were building in their own garages. And so, you know, we turned the, we turned the brand into this kind of real hotbed of leading the way in car culture and representing car culture. At the same time, as more and more designers were feeling, feeling stifled when they were working for the OEMs because there was less risk being taken um, and more and more restrictions on what they could and couldn't do. Um, and even just spinning it back and looking what happened in, in, in the design education world, when I, when I graduated... Hold, before you get was, too, hold on, before you get too far away from that concept, I just want to ask, do you think well, that whose fault is it? when you talk about the, the design becoming mediocre or vanilla and there's not a lot of diversity and all this other stuff, is it the consumer's fault or is it the fault of the, of the OEMs? Like, is it, is it a chicken before the egg kind of thing? Is it impossible to figure out? Or who's, who can we blame for a bunch <laughs> of white crossovers driving around with horrible uh, design? I blame, I blame the marketing people. Hmm. I can, actually, I can be contentious, right? I blame, I blame marketing. I blame I blame the rise of marketing in um, in, in in consumer products um, and, and and certainly in OEMs. Extra, in extrapolate of, on that a little bit. What do you mean by marketing? What did they do? Well, it's the thing that thing you find most of the time with with marketing is they love to analyze data, right? And if you're analyzing data, you're looking back. And when you get marketing and finance in a company looking for patterns in data, what they're actually doing is looking at what happened last year or the years previous. 
and and they're also those two units, right? Marketing, marketing, and um, certainly on the on the on the finance side, but also on marketing, you very rarely find people who are willing to take a risk in a company. Everybody's protecting their backs. Everybody looks at the data to find out what has sold in the past, and it's this gradual. From and I'm looking at this from a from a a, a brand leadership point of view. To me, it's a gradual death spiral into conservative thought, right? And um, you know, and there's a famous, there's a famous, um, there's a famous phrase from Henry Ford, which, which I loved it when I first heard it, and it's become more used now, but it's still brilliant, right? If I'd asked the public what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. And mm. what you get is, what you get is, you get, you get, you know, you get research groups asking consumers what they like, and of course, they always go for what they've seen before. They always go for what's comfortable, right? And so you end up with all of these different elements driving this kind of spiral into kind of conservative thought and conservative design because nobody wants to break a mold and take a chance. Um, and I saw that. I mean, I saw that at a small scale at, at Mattel. Um, I see it across many other kind of consumer consumer products, brands that I've worked with or know people who work at. Um, and it, it becomes this kind of it becomes this kind of it's 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 a self um you know it's a self it's a self um propelling prophecy that you're always looking behind you're always reading data and you're always being conservative and you're always worried about what the other people are doing what your competition's doing and that's really why everything just ends up looking the same do you think I, it's I, possible I, that the manufacturers can seize on on ev and as as this new technology and are is there any chance that they're going to go, this is our chance to maybe do something great again? Or are we just, are we stuck? Are we fucked? Are we just in I would, this? You know, I would, I would love to see it. I mean, I think the other side of it is that the other side of it is that regulation becomes more and more stringent and more and more, you know, more and more fixed. And the more regulation you have, you never go backwards on regulations. My hope when I, when I first started seeing the notion of, 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 of EV design i hope that some regulations would change because you don't have the same packaging constraints and consequently safety safety constraints in, a, in an ev with with all of the heavy all of the heavy lifting done under the floor right and then when you combine that with the notion of like autonomy uh autonomous driving at various levels right where cars become slower and safer in in, in city centers i had hoped there would be a class of vehicle that would be a more flexible or would allow a more flexible kind of construction method Especially when you look into kind of you know flexible manufacturing methods like three D printing and stuff, which is very definitely becoming um, manufacturing rather than prototyping. I had hoped that, um, and I think there's some very interesting things going on with packaging studies on a, on a, on a skateboard, where you no longer have the constraints of having to fit a, a, an internal combustion engine up front and a gas tank somewhere safe and all of that. Right. So in effect, you can you can place the humans anywhere on that platform. And consequently, make that car any shape you want. I would hope that we see some really radical designs. Because at the end of the day, fashion exists for a reason, right? Styling and design, it's not superfluous. It does sell things when you get it right. Um, so I don't know, man. I, I would love to think that we're entering a new era of, of radical vehicle design. That, well, we have, results- like, if you look at the engines and stuff that everybody had to make before, they're ridiculously complex, and I love the combustion engine. Don't get me wrong, but it's really, really hard to to fit that entire machine into the regulations and all the moving parts and the suppliers and the wiring and the fuel systems and the transmissions and all this other stuff 
it's a lot easier for some startup to go, we're going to make a skateboard, put some electric motors on it and go. And I'm hoping, oh, that, like you say, I hope we see some really radical things happen because I would love to see something new. It is so stagnant right now. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the thing that's going to get very exciting for the thing that makes us all tick, right, which is the the more performance-oriented driver's car, as, as skateboard, it's the very, very early days of skateboard development. But as skateboards become light, lighter, as battery technology improves, as motor technology improves, as, you know, structures, structures kind of become more cost-effective, whether it's through literally the economies of scale and manufacturing or in fact technological improvements you know i think it'll get very exciting when you can buy as an enthusiast a an affordable high power lightweight skateboard to put whatever you want on top of that is an excellent segue it gets exciting i you know you talked about uh when you were young going to a junkyard getting a motor from the junkyard putting in the car going fast in a weekend what do we have to look forward to? And this is probably going to, you know, we'll probably start talking to Hackrod a little bit. What are we as enthusiasts going to be able to do pretty soon that will fill that void that we don't have right now? Well, you know, I think the, uh, I mean, I think the wild thing, the wild thing about EVs, right, is that theoretically they're no more complicated to build than like a hobby grade radio control car, right? Which means that far more people will be able to enjoy building things. It, it, it's very difficult to build a hot rod, right? Whether that hot rod is a 31 Ford, like the one I've got sitting in my garage and it's been there for six years in bits, whether it's a, whether it's a, a, a you know, performing in a suspension upgrade and an engine swap on a 911, it's still hard, right? Everything's heavy. Everything's oily. Everything's dirty. It's complex. It's also and if romantic you don't know what, though. All that stuff you're it, saying is it breeds romance. It, it, it breeds romance, but it's very limiting for most average people. Right. Like right. you've really got to You've got to suffer for your art to really do it successfully. Um, there's easy ways to do it. If you want to build a, a create motor into an American kind of, you know, a body or B body muscle car, you can do it in a couple of weekends. If all you're doing is unplugging something and plugging it back in. But even that is actually surprisingly difficult for your average guy, right? Your average person these days doesn't really know how to tighten a bolt properly. <laughs> Never mind. Where, you know, and, and, and we, you know, the, the golden age of hot rodding was born out of a world where everybody fixed everything. You went, right. you studied it at school. There was classes at school on how to fix things and how to weld things. And it was just part of life. Whereas we, and live as in this much world as we now, pine for that right now, it's just not going to happen. It just isn't no, as much not. as we want to like force that on society, you know, it's just, it isn't going to happen. We just have to accept that that's just not how things are anymore. Yeah, but I th- and I think that also the the, the 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 light in the end of the tunnel is if you look at if you look at the Gen Z and in fact millennials who have grown up being like the digital interface for them isn't something they ever even had to learn, right? It's just it's their language. Um, and you look at the power of um, you know card, your average card package now is incredibly powerful and far easier to use than it ever was when I was studying. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and then you combine that with on-demand manufacturing, right? We, you know, I mentioned 3D printing, but you look at what's going on in everything from 3D printing to CNC manufacturing and laser cutting and how easy it is to get parts, super high precision parts made at the click of a button. Um, it's now easier than, it, it's easier than ever before for a new generation to make things. I feel um, like we're in this and- transitory period. I, I, I feel like things are going to get really, really, really cool. Like just 
awesome. But I still feel like we're in this like little holding pattern right now where we're not quite quite there yet where we're like 3d printing parts and for our own cars and doing whatever we want to do and making stuff and it's like legos and we're putting stuff together i feel like that could be the idealistic future but right now it just feels like we're just kind of waiting for combustion engines to die so that we can move on to this next thing yeah i mean it's it's, it's also all very expensive still right like 3d right. printing there are some amazing things you can do with it um but it's still in the early stages and doing anything at scale is still tens if not hundreds of thousands of dollars you know um but the the, the, the it's going to happen right, right. The, the march of progress is, is is unrelenting um and if you just look at some of the stuff you can do this year versus five years ago it was unheard of it was five years ago it was science fiction and now it's commonplace there's, there's you know you just type in 3d print bureau and find out all of the options for you on the internet now and it's accessible um and if you've got like three brain cells to rub together, you can maybe make a few things in CAD yourself. And you could, <laughs> yeah. even, you could even make something in CAD and then cast it, like if you needed something that wasn't available anymore. That's all this stuff. I mean, that would be, you know, you could get a 3D printer for $300, $400, and you could be casting parts. It's crazy. No, it's, it, it, it is wild, right? If you're, if you're at all inclined to, to make something, um, then either you can figure it out yourself and you can buy equipment far cheaper and far more powerful equipment than you've ever been able to do. And there's also bureau after bureau after bureau servicing these industries. And one of the things, even even in even in an event like we've had in the past 12 months through lockdown, the amount of people who've sat down and go, you know what, I haven't made anything for a while. And so I think there is a re- there's there's a renaissance in kind of making that's no longer the kind of crafty world it was 10 years ago, where you know it was it was very definitely people of a certain persuasion dedicated their lives to figuring out how to make things. Um, I think I think now we're at a point where it's far more accessible. I think there is a desire. I would love to think there was a counter movement to consumerism um, that, that that actually values, you know, something that you had input in yourself. Um, you know, you, you look at things like Nike ID and the idea of designing your own custom sneakers, which has been around for you know over a decade now. And people tend to have far more, um, you know, if you've got ownership over the creative process then generally you've got more love for the item that you sweated a little bit over. Um, but then, then but then there's the other side of it, right, where there's a new generation who don't really value possessions at all, and, and you're now beginning to see the rise of the digital product, right. where, you know, people would rather have a digital pair of sneakers and have to drop 150 bucks on them. People would rather build the sneakers online but never buy them and just share them on Instagram to say, look what I did. And you, you you haven't got the level of investment in trying to get it right or wrong when you're actually producing expensive products. So there's, it's a very interesting time for. Which the, way the, do you think the, it's going to go? Um, I think that digital product will become huge. I think it's going to be massive industry, right? Massive. Are you talking um, about kind of like NFT style digital industry? Yeah, like- and I think that I think NFTs linked to it. NFT is part of it. Um, you know, block the idea of attaching blockchain to digital IP is fascinating, um, and NFT is really the first kind of mass, um, the, the the mass example of that, or the or the broadly kind of recognised example of that. Um, but I think that as you as you just look at video game culture, right, and you look at how in our world you look at how games like Forza have developed, and the custom shop in Forza has gone from being you can change the graphics on your car and the wheels to being really quite a deep experience of modifying your car. And in fact, there's like marketplaces between kids kind of buying and selling and trading and showing off um, their creations in video games. 
And 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 for a lot, a lot of people, it's just like, look, man, why would I spend? Why would I? Why would I bury my life savings for the next ten years in in a car that, at the end of the day, is limited in its in its appeal? When I can just do hundreds of the things every every weekend because the, and share you, with my we, friends. There's got to be a way to show those people that that one is meaningful and one is I don't want to say meaningless, but it doesn't. It if it's, it's gone, not as fulfilling. Yeah, it just doesn't. It's it's like an empty glass. There's nothing there. It's just vapid. It's nothing. And if we can, well, I mean, I, I think that's where the interesting thing is, right? Is how do you spin? I've I've noticed an uptake in interest in car culture in the past 10 years. Um, and I think part of it has been driven by um, like video video game culture, right? Where you get to a certain point where you want to know more. If you're into it, you're into it. And then you want to know where the things you're playing have actually come from. Um, and the same thing could be said for music, right? The rock, the, 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 certainly the rock industry had this massive resurgence like what, 10 years ago when when um, when rock band came out. Yeah. And, and suddenly, suddenly kids are hearing ACDC. They're not hearing ACDC on the radio. They're not hearing it because they're rebelling against their parents and searching out, you know, what's the cool band to be into. They're, they're hearing it on rock band, playing it on rock band, and then going out to find out more about ACDC, right? So I think the same thing is happening with car culture. Um, I certainly think video game culture in our world has, has, has got more positives than negatives. Um, and I think that, you know, I would hope that... Um, as accessibility through technology. And I think that EV certainly long-term have, have, have an ability to give kids a very easy entrance into building or modifying things. Um, then I would hope that in fact that, that accelerates car culture. I certainly don't think that car culture is going to die um, because we're in this new, you know, you listen to the doom, the doom says, and um, you're I used, talking you know, to yeah, one I of used them. To be. Chris was that guy. Went, about three years ago when I started this podcast, <laughs> I was like, it's over. We're done. It's done. But the more that I think about it, the more people I talk to, I just think it's just going to be a constant evolution. You know, the, the tr traveling and the freedom to travel and being able to move, move people around is never going to go away until we're Star Trek teleporting people around. So it's always <laughs> going to be there. It's just it's what we do with it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, that for the longest time, I would refer to you, you, the analogy. When I first started, like, diving deep into – when I left Hot Wheels and we got into tech and we started hanging out in um, – San Francisco and Silicon Valley and, and 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 I was I was met with the same challenge that I had at Hot Wheels. Like years earlier, when I when I became vice president of Hot Wheels, the big challenge was that the research group were telling us that Hot Wheels was over, that nobody cared about cars anymore, nobody could relate to cars, car culture was dead, the dream of the open road was dead. Therefore, they weren't going to put any resources into Hot Wheels because who cared? And we read between the lines and realized that the only reason that that's the way it was, was because that when we were kids, right, every Friday night or Saturday night, you were taught that the only way you, the way to catch a bad guy was to have a killer car, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Jukes of Hazard, A-Team, Knight Rider, Starsky and Hutch, goes all the way through, right? Hmm. And so we built, we built all of the crazy stunts that we did to show that Hot Wheels could actually be a cultural phenomenon and that it was big and exciting and real. And when I got into tech, um, we, 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 we came across the same thing. There were so many people ready to dismiss cars as just old-fashioned and dead like dinosaurs. Is it because that's um, what they really think, or it's because what they want to have happen? It's because they want it. It's because it's, it's what they wanted to have happen. At the end of the day, they were all invested in their, in their algorithms, right? And, and you know, I, I, I was invited to go and talk a couple of times at a very, a very good conference in Germany in Tegensee and on, at the foothills of the Alps, and it's an automotive conference um, put on by some, some fairly large VCs 
and they would invite all of the who's who from the from the from the, the world of tech and automotive. And it was, you know, I, I met people there like Tony Fidel, right, the 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 the, the godfather of the iPod and the iPhone. He was like Jobs' left hand man, and. Uh, I got invited through my buddy J.R. Hildebrand, the, the the indie driver, who who had been working with um, Stanford on their autonomous driving program. But generally, it was all these like tech startups who were kind of trying to sell autonomous algorithms. And you would sit there and you would listen to people presenting, and in in their minds, it was a done deal that autonomous cars and rideshare was going to be the future, and everything else was irrelevant. And the bit that they were missing. Was the kind of was the cultural element was the was the human side of it that that the car is more than a means of transport right the car is about it's a status symbol for a lot of people in this world it's the most expensive thing they'll ever own and they care about what it says they care about how it looks and and you couple that with the ability to go it, it's your steed right it's your cowboy steed when you want to go on an adventure and you are in control of that steed. And it's your partner in crime. And while for your average family of six, that's irrelevant, for a huge percentage of the population, it's still the one thing that represents freedom to them. And when you combine that with the one thing that horses didn't have, where it's actually a man-made object, it's a desirable designed object that, 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 is, that is incredibly complex and incredibly luxurious and incredibly flashy in most instances, then I don't think we're going to see the death of car culture at all. I think what will happen is the science of car culture that we love will become more important to a larger percentage of people, right? So let's call ourselves the freaks in the world at the moment, right? Where maybe we're only 5% of people who really care about cars the way that we do. But I think that cars and car culture and rallies and customizing will become more important to a larger percentage of people as they're freed from the need to spend $80,000 every three years on something that does everything for the family. And in fact, are enabled to, 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 you know, the, maybe there is a ride share or a, or a autonomous vehicle that picks the kids up that goes to school. And I think in that world, you'll find more people focusing on the car as personal statement or personal freedom. I'm not saying it's going to be everybody, but I think that was, I think we're already seeing it with a new generation looking for something that's, that's 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 um that's both a fashion statement and freeing and a social tool. Um, you're seeing it with you go on any any rally at the moment, and you, there's new people attending every year who are into classic cars and they want to go out and drive and have that kind of, you know. Are you talking about the Overcrest rally right now? <laughs> I, I am talking about the Overcrest rally and, uh, and, and 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 many others of its genre. Yeah, yeah. You know, but one thing that-, that brings up though, Felix, is you you talk about well, there's always going to be people who maybe rebel from this idea of well, it's all autonomous. We don't need to own it. It's ride sharing, and we want to have this now thing that we put our own heart and soul into and represents us. But you mentioned regulation earlier. Will regulation stop people? from doing that. It can. It's it, it may stifle, but it will never stop. And the more you try to stop, you're going to basically create a rebel culture that <laughs> will grow even stronger. That will then be used as uh as basically the foundation of a of car culture then. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, and it's 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 funny. I did a, I did a, a few years ago I did a bloomberg.gov panel in San Francisco where we were talking about and it was like you know the, the 
the director, one of the guys sitting beside me was the director of the NTSB, right? And it, and it was all about autonomous cars. And I was there to talk about what the intent was from, or, or the, or the, um, the, the, um, what, what it meant to design. But, you know, the, the big question was like, you know, when, when are we going to see petrol cars outlawed? Why will that, you know, what will that effect be? And the government answer was, we don't know because we've got no idea when autonomous cars will really make sense. And I kind of made the joke, which stopped everyone in the tracks. It was like, look, man, in this country, you try to take people's guns away, you see what happens? Huh. Well, imagine what happens, if, what, imagine what happens if you try to take the pickup trucks away, right? The idea that most of this country is actually rural and people need a truck to do everything. And the gun is hanging need- in the truck. I mean, it's in the window <laughs> of the truck. I mean, it's both. They're both right there. I mean, like, look, the, the notion of what is freedom in this country and the amount of people who will stand up and shout about it is, is far greater if you start telling them that you're going to start restricting how they can travel around, right? Good point. So I, 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 think, in, I think in urban centers, you're going to see a lot of change, right? And, and it's probably changed for the better. Um, but I, I, and I think that, I think that a, lot of, a lot of regulations and restrictions, the thing that's going to make our life harder is probably environmental regulation rather than safety regulation or, or what kind of a vehicle you're allowed to drive. And so while, you know, I, 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 I love um, internal combustion uh, with a passion, I'm also not scared of electric. If electric means um, that we all get to still have our steed in the garage for our kind of 5 a.m. jaunt out of the city on a Saturday or Sunday morning, then there's nothing wrong with that. Because at the end of the day, yes, the sound of a flat six over your shoulder is, is, is exhilarating. Um, but if it was give that up, uh, or give it all up. I would give that up for a, for for the wine of an electric motor to still have that like notion of freedom and expression that still drives a lot of people. And that's what um, I mean. That's kind of what I've I've resigned myself to is like, look, whether we like it or not, all of this stuff is coming. So we might as well seize on every opportunity we can. And I'm going to probably drive my 911 around at like eight o'clock at night, wherever the most people are in downtown Minneapolis. <laughs> We're all going to be eating dinner outside. It's going to be 2065. Am I still going to be alive then? Yeah, I'll probably still be alive. And I'm going to make so much noise. I'm just going to make everybody mad. It's going to be fantastic. I cannot wait to be part of that rebel culture. Well, it's funny. I mean, it's, it's funny as well, right? Because you, you, you look at, I don't know whether you have it here. I'm sure you do, right? You have like steam tractor rallies and shit, right? Like, yeah. They, oh, yeah. Like, that's, and people, you're out, you're out in rural, you're out in rural wherever. And, and the traffic's been backed up for 16 miles because these old guys are driving their steam tractors down the road. But everyone's just like, oh. <laughs> Look, that's rad. Check that out. It's part. It's historic. It's yeah, part of. Sure. It's history, and I think that I, I, I honestly like maybe we'll be maybe. I mean, look, and the fact of it is, I'm nearly fifty now. I feel like an old fart with a flat cap on when I'm tinkering with my car. But <laughs> the fact of it is, they're not going anywhere. They're going to be seen as part of history. Now, regulations may restrict when and how you drive them, but when you do drive them, you're going to drive them hard, and you're going to go and make a whole load of noise, and you're going to enjoy it. And I think the beautiful thing about car culture is generally they're things of beauty anyway. Right. Yeah. So, so the, the people, people do appreciate a vintage car. I mean, I'm lucky. I live in Los Angeles, right? You probably see more classic cars on the road on a daily basis than anywhere else in the world. Um, but whether it's a, whether it's a really beaten up seventies, like luxury barge or whether it's a fifties chrome laden boat or whether it's a hot rod or whether it's a, a VW bug, people respond like generally respond very favorably to it. I want to talk a little bit about your art. Um, I, what's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you in the first place? And then I kind of discovered all the other things that you've done and, and, and talked about and all the opinions you have and everything else. But your art is what really, really drew me in 
Tell us about how you moved from doing Hot Wheels stuff into into just doing this art and having your own garage with the palm trees outside where you're, you know, doing art stuff. Well, it's, 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 it's a funny thing. Um, I was an artist before I was a designer. Um, and all the way through my life, from from being a school kid, really, anytime I needed to earn an extra bit of cash, I would turn I would turn to art. And over time, um, it would go from doing kind of watercolors of local scenes in Newcastle and selling them to my mother's friends for like you know twenty quid here and thirty quid there, to 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 being a to being a career. I I was in a band. The, the bit that we haven't talked about was I was in a band. I was in several bands, but I left Mattel in '99 to be in. My band was getting on Radio One. Um, it was half of the same band. So when Mattel want to move me, to, they closed that office down. They want to move me to the States. Um, I said, no, I'm going to stay here and be in a band. And so I did for five years. I was, I was, I toured as a musician and nearly made it, met all my heroes, but it didn't make me any money. And so I started painting again and I, and I'd, I'd taken my kind of love of graffiti. I used to write graffiti when I was a kid and, um, I'd got into kind of cutting stencils and a certain kind of graffiti. And so I turned that into doing buildings. And at the time, I was like, look, what's what's a universal thing that people love about their environment? Well, it's the historic buildings um, in the city. I can sell those all day long for people who love Newcastle. But I started doing modernist buildings, and I was cutting them in stencils, and they were kind of graffiti slash Warhol-esque images, and I did very well. And I built a reputation. I was hanging in galleries, and I was selling a lot, and I was doing very well. And then when I, got, when I came back to Hot Wheels in 2004, I just stopped painting. Um, and at some point, on that journey, I did one painting in the same style, but it was the first time I'd ever done a car. Um, and it was for a charity event with Pixar, Disney Pixar. It was like Mattel designers and Disney Pixar designers putting pieces together to sell at the charity event. And I did two Hot Wheels cars drag racing as a stencil graffiti piece. And it sold for a fortune. It was the, it was the highest selling item of the night. And so in the back of my head, I was like, you've got to start painting again, man. You, should, you really need to stop painting. Did you, so did you I love left, doing it? Is it something that you didn't know that you'd missed until you'd done it? Yeah, it was great because the, the, by this point, I was a design executive, which means you're not really designing anything at all. You're just, you're just enabling other people to design great things, which is really where my skill is. I'm, I'm definitely, you know, I'm a kick-ass designer, but I also recognized early on there's a lot of other people who are better than me, and I can help them, I can help them excel. And so by this point, my role at Hot Wheels was very definitely executive rather than creative. Um, and so turning my, turning my hand back to art, I, I, I realized that there was nobody to tell me it was right or wrong. Like literally that's the wonderful thing about art is it's, it's art. Nobody can tell you it's right or wrong. It's done when you say it is, you're the artist, take it or leave it. And that was very, very, um, that was very kind of both empowering and, and it was a big release for me. Um, and so I kept painting a little bit and I, I, I when I left Hot Wheels, I did a job for, um, a restaurant in the UK, wanted some artwork. It was through my mother. And she was doing like one of the best restaurants in the north of England. And I had painted a Porsche for myself as an experiment. And she saw it and bought it for the restaurant and asked me to do another kind of, you know, another 10 pieces. Um, and everybody who saw that piece was just like, oh, my God, like, I, that's amazing. Yes, it's a car, but it's a piece of pop art. Um, and it, obviously, a 911 is an iconic car. And so I did another one for myself. And it, I never really got it. I never really got it right. I never really was quite happy with it, but it hung on my office wall at home for years. And then a couple of years ago, a friend of mine, um, John Benton, who's one of the leading, um, he's a nine twelve, predominantly nine twelve specialist in SoCal, lost half of his business to fire. Yeah, and it was it was at a time when I had no money, 
But I was for something about the story. I'd known John for a bit. I'd seen him at parties, and he was friends of friends, and blah blah blah. And I really liked him, and I knew that he was probably about the most genuine guy out there in in, in that world. And I just really felt for him, right? Because it wasn't just about the loss, but it was about the pain and the ass he had to go through untangling the insurance claims from you know sixteen different owners of parts and cars that had gone up in the fire. And so I I talked to another friend of mine, um, Rob. Dates, who does a lot of um, business on Bring a Trailer, Wob Cars on Bring a Trailer. And I was like, Rob, I've got this big painting of a Porsche on my wall. Do you think we could do a charity auction on Bring a Trailer? And he rang them up and they were really into it. And so I, so it forced me to finish the piece. And then we put it up as a, as, a, as, a, as a charity auction to raise money for John Benton. And it went through the roof. Like, I was like, holy shit, that, that, that's mental. Like, I never thought my art was worth that much. Which one was it? Um, I'm looking at some of the stuff on Bring a Trailer right now. Which one was that? It's, it's, a, it's, a, big, it's a big piece. It's a kind of, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a three-quarter view of a, of a 911 ST in purple and pink. Yeah, I see And it's it. got like, and, I, and then I put like, like almost like plaid stripes over it. It was a very kind of abstracted, um, and it, it, it went for crazy money. And, and so, obviously, John was very happy, and I was very happy to build a hand over a check to John to say, "Here, I'll go, here goes sunshine. Like this is what I can contribute." Um, but on the back of that, everybody's like, "Dude, you got to do another one. Do one for yourself." And so I did. I did a. I, I started a new painting, um, and it went for more money. And then I did a BMW CSL, and that went for more money still. And I guess part of it is part of it is the art itself. Part of it is my history with Hot Wheels, a famous brand. Um, and the, 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 inspiration in the pieces is really goes all the way back to a lot of the illustrations, certainly kind of like that you would get on packaging from, you know, um, Hot Wheels and Matchbox when I was a kid, this kind of streak violent, um, you know, the, the idea of capturing, not just the image of the car and not just the image of a car in motion, but also using color to suggest sound and action and blur, um, and I always, I always strive to do a piece that, that, that the, the, the partner of the car person, um, be it husband or wife, would like to have in their living room, right? Because I'm not in the business of doing art that just goes and hangs in gar- on, on, on garage walls or man caves. Um, I always try to make it. I, I always try to make it a, 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 a good piece of design, um, and that's kind of borne out really with, with where these things are being are being hung. And quite often over the past year. Obviously, on the back of Bring a Trailer, I started getting a lot of inquiries um, by, you know, a, a lot of a lot of a lot of wives buying stuff for their husbands as gifts, as as sixtieth birthday presents. And oh, um, I gotta wait another twenty years. I was my wife listens to the podcast. <laughs> I was gonna tell her, I'm like, hey, now you know what to get me for my birthday next year. But I guess I gotta wait till I'm sixty. So hang in there, man. Yeah, it's only sixtieth. I only do sixtieth birthdays. Um, <laughs> You know, it's because it's 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 fascinating, right? Because it's because it's something that I love. It's the first time I've been able to get back to being purely creative, um, and I've I've found a way to celebrate the culture that I love in a way that that is truly unique to me. Um, and you know, it, it, there's a combination of my history, my name, who I am, what I've done, mixed with a fairly kind of radical approach to automotive art. Um, and I, and I tr- I'm trying not to do. I don't want to get into the poster game, right? This isn't digital art. This is this is fine art. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't want to get into the game where I'm doing like, you know, $50, $100 prints. My, my, my aim is to give, you know, my, my aim is to give anybody who drops the dollars on one of my pieces, whether it's an original or whether it's a print, that it's a genuine piece of art, which will appreciate. And, and I'm, I'm also trying to build a community of anybody I've sold to 
um, that I know who they are, right? I deal with everybody directly. I don't have a faceless site. If you want a piece, you have to contact me and I'll talk to you about it. Um, and so I'm kind of trying to, I'm trying to build, I've made a lot of friends through doing this. Um, I'm trying to build a community of people who have invested in my art, but I'm also trying to keep in touch with them all so that they know that this isn't just a flash in the pan. I've made a bit of money and now I'm moving on. Um, you know, I'll go back to an executive position sometime in the next 12 months. That's for sure. But I've kind of kickstarted this, this side of, of me that's both relevant to the world that I love here in Los Angeles, right? The kind of the world of car culture. And, and I'm beginning to be asked to do some stuff with some fairly big brands and some fairly big entities, which is very exciting. Um, and if people want to see this, where do they, where do they go? If they want to see some of your art, I, I mean, Instagram is my main, is my main kind of thing, right? Felix Holst at Instagram. Yeah. Like, at, yeah, we'll, we'll, at we'll link Holst, it in right? the show notes for you. Yeah. And then I've got, there's a website as well. You can look at felixholst.com. Um, it's only, it's really a holding page to direct you to Instagram really. And, and that's, <laughs> Any That's plans for an NFT things. now that we talked about that? Just, just. Um, you know, I, I think there is, but not until there's no point until you build up a reputation, right? They, they, yeah. At the end of the day, there was a quick, there was a quick buzz where artists that most people had never heard of became multimillionaires overnight with NFTs. But the reality were the reality is most of those guys already had a, a, an underground art following and were selling art for quite a lot of money. Right. I've um, considered doing some of my photography as an NFT, but I think I'd feel bad if I put it up there and someone it auctioned off for like, you know, Point zero 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 five Bitcoin. So, that was- <laughs> but, the, but, but, but yeah, but the interesting thing on that is, right, and it's one of the things that's got huge implications for digital IP in general across all aspects of business. Is that you can set your kind of royalty payment so that in the future, as you build your reputation, technically your art should climb in value somewhat, right? It may not be huge, but every time there's a transaction, every time someone sells a piece of your art, you get a bit of a cut of that profit, which has never been possible, right? The, the, yeah. the idea that. Hmm. You know that, that if Picasso was still making royalties on the art he'd sold when he was a struggling artist, when he was when he was an old man, he would have been very very wealthy. Um, yeah, that's and, probably and art- why it's on Ethereum is because it's probably something with the smart contracts where you get a cut to your wallet or something every time it gets sold. Yeah, I mean that's that's a yeah that's yeah, a big yeah. that's a big part that's a big part of NFT really is is that you can get paid on your IP for its for eternity. And the the reason fifty percent of the art in the art world is is in for NFTs, the other fifty percent can't wait to do them down. And it's because it starts to democratize that world where really the art, the art industry is a big racket. Yeah, right? totally. The dealers, the dealers make the money, not the artists. And the dealers decide which artists they're going to artificially bump up so they can sell between themselves and make lots of money. Um, and the artist might have sold that piece for $1,000 and it might now be trading at a quarter of a million dollars, but it's the dealers who are getting rich on that, not the artist. Whereas NFTs allow that artist to take part in every single transaction on his or her work for eternity right um and it's it's you start looking at it, it's got huge implications yeah for sure it's fraught it's fraught, it's fraught with problems right now but this to me there's no point in me doing it I'm, I'm i've got a digital i've got a digital scan of every piece that i do that's not a commission if i do a commission that's the, the person paid me to do the do the piece it's their piece when i hand it over yep. but if i've done a piece myself and i own every aspect of that piece right I, and i have a digital scan which is a very very high quality digital piece of art and I think my plan is to hold on to those until I build, you know, my reputation at the point where my my originals are, are trading for a lot of money, and then do the NFT release. Um, because at the end of the day, it's the same as any art, right? Whether you're in a whether you're in a band or whether you're an artist, it's only your notoriety and your fame that drives the value of your work, really. Right. Um, and so you've got to just, you know, you just got to wait. You've got to continue to build your brand, which is what it's what it's all about. Felix, thank you so much for spending time with us today, man. It's been awesome. 
Thanks, thanks for having me. It's been great fun. Next time I'm out there, myself. I'm going to come find you. <laughs> definitely, definitely do. There's always there's always a tequila in the in the in the uh, in the kitchen for you when you uh, swing by the studio. Sounds good, buddy. Take care of yourself. All right, guys. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks. Right. Bye bye. Take care. Now, before we get too much further, let's take a break here and talk about our sponsor, Olberg Car Care. Olberg is your source of professional detailing compounds and supplies that is research tested and developed by professional detailers themselves. These are the guys that are actually passionate about detailing and know firsthand what makes a good product. And they truly are great products. I love it's a simple, foolproof two-step system, easy, and gives an amazing finish. And right now, they're offering a whopping 20% off your order when you use the code Overcrest. The discount code is good not only on oberkcarcare.com, but also on detailedimage.com and carsupplieswarehouse.com. Please go check them out today. Well, Jake, we covered a lot of ground and Jake, that was that was amazing. I really like these. I really like these a lot. The paintings? Yeah. I do too. I've been sitting here scrolling <laughs> the whole time. Yeah, I like them. Do you like me? I don't know how much they cost, so I don't know how much yeah, I like I don't you. know what the commissions are. <laughs> I don't know what the commissions are. But uh, anyway, yeah, many thanks to cool Felix art. for coming on. Uh, definitely check Felix Holt out on Instagram. The link will be in the show notes. Otherwise, just type Felix, H-O-L-S-T, uh, I believe, yeah. uh, H-O-L-S-T on Instagram. You can find him right away. We're going to tag him on our social so you guys can have a look at what he does. It's it's incredible. So everybody awesome tell, art, everybody awesome tell your wife uh, to buy you one. It seems well, only like if you're that. 60. <laughs> <laughs> or if your friend is named Jake and he loves you, he will buy you one. I mean, oh, really? Yes. Only if he loves you very, very much. Well, you're about to find out. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, guys. We will see you next week. See ya. You gotta sink to swim First you know you don't succeed You gotta recreate your misery You are no artist, hard. You're